and all of us exists a longing for community, for real deep relationships. We desire to become known, to belong, to drop the facade and let others into our lives and in turn be invited into theirs. But being in close community with others isn't always easy. For some of us, we're simply too busy cramming our lives with plans and activities that there is little to no room to form deep connections. We simply check the box of showing up and move on with the rest of our week or forsake gathering altogether, relegating it to an optional part of our lives and discipleship to Jesus. For others, there exists hurt or painful previous experiences, leaving scars and anxieties about letting others into our lives to know us intimately. Wounded, we keep others at bay or never really engage authentically. Regardless of our experience, without community, without leaning into the tension that comes with intertwining our lives with those who may not be like us, without slowing down enough to build those roots, we will remain stunted and stagnant in our journey into becoming more like Jesus. As followers of Jesus, we are not merely a gathering of friends or like-minded Christians. Rather, we are called to transform into a new family. Our journey involves embracing the beautiful chaos of genuinely living life together, standing side by side in deeply rooted relationship with Jesus guiding us every step of the way. Good morning, everyone. Again, welcome to Grace Church Medina East Campus. So thankful to be here with you and to be all together, whether we're here uh, in the auditorium live or whether whether we're on the live stream. Just really grateful to be able to spend this time together and to get this opportunity to dive into God's word and to share in those things together. Uh, I should say uh, first that if you don't know me, just allow me a second to introduce myself. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here at Medina East. And I just want to issue to you because I know we just had kind of like a monumental like mile marker. We just celebrated a new year. So I did want to extend to you a a very happy new year. I hope that your festivities about a week ago as you celebrated the new year were great. Uh, Whether those festivities involved uh, a social dynamic of a number of other people or whether you're one of those kind of people that just likes to sit by yourself and watch Ryan Seacrest and the ball drop. Not at the same time, okay? So, but again, happy new year. Uh, And again, so what we're going to be doing this uh, weekend as we kind of kick off the new year and a new season in the life of our campus, uh, we are also entering into a brand new series this weekend, a series that is going to be lasting about nine weeks. So this will take us into the beginning of March in our time, in our community time together. And uh, this series we are simply calling, as you can see from the graphic behind me, and as we just witnessed in the bumper video that we watched, this series we're simply calling a single word. It is the word community. It's all about community. And so we're going to spend the next nine weeks talking about this. And so I think it's incumbent upon me to kind of give us a high-level overview of some of the things that we are looking to accomplish, some of the aims that we have in this series. So in this series, essentially, we want to take the next couple months uh, in the life of our campus, and weekend service specifically, and we want to focus our attention on this, guys, this huge, pervasive idea that you can see throughout all of Scripture. Like from cover to cover, this idea is woven, uh, is woven throughout every story and every idea that's in the Bible. It's this pervasive idea in Scripture that a massive part of the life that God offers to every single one of us in Jesus Christ that a massive part of that life can be accessed in intentional, meaningful, deepening, and ultimately God-glorifying relationships with other followers of Jesus. I think what we want to see in this series is that all throughout, Scripture is going to tell us that we, if we're a follower of Jesus, 
we experience the power of God's Holy Spirit, of the spirit that Jesus puts, the spirit of God's son that he puts into our hearts to transform us into people that look more and more like Jesus, that the power of the spirit to make us more and more like Jesus occurs when we deliberately decide to give ourselves to others in community. So that's what we're gonna be doing basically throughout all this series. And guys, I gotta tell you, I don't know if you could tell right now, but I am super pumped, like jacked, whatever other words the youngins use nowadays to describe exuberance and enthusiasm. Guys, I am so jacked for this series. How many of you are like me? Maybe you're the extroverts in the room. How many of you are like me? How many when you hear community, you're like, yes, I'm jacked, I'm pumped up about this. Anybody? Okay, there's three, which is great. I mean, we'll take that. There's three people. But yeah, I, so maybe you're matching my enthusiasm. Maybe for you, when you hear the word community or you hear that we're gonna be making this foray into community and what God says about it, maybe you're like, oh man, this is so awesome. Like I share in your enthusiasm so much so because you're saying things like, man, I long, I just long to discover the power of the Holy Spirit to knit a group of people together, to love God and to love other people and to find a sense of meaning, purpose, and mission in the shared life, the united life we get to live together around the risen Lord of the world, Jesus Christ. Anybody with me there? Okay. Apparently it's 9.15, I get it, it's a new year, it's, it's gonna be fine because if there's some of us in the room that maybe respond to the, in, in this way with regards to the idea of, of community and exploring what God wants for us in it, there are probably in this, in a hypothetical uh, opposite end of the spectrum, there are probably those of you who are maybe, maybe you're a little bit more of the introverts in the room, but there are probably those of you who are uh, reacting in a very different way from what I've just described. Maybe you're, you're like, your response to the notion that we're going to be talking about community is like, yeah. So what you're saying is for the next nine weeks, you and other people are gonna get up on the stage and you're gonna tell me that I need to be more social in my life or that God wants me to be more social or something like that. And for some of you, you're like, nope, no thanks. I've been there, I've done that, I got the t-shirt and I still also have the wounds, right? And the scars and the hurts from attempts that I've made to pledge myself to others in deepening relationships in community. You're like, no thanks, because community for you has been so cumbersome, and you know that community is messy, and it's difficult, and it's anxiety-ridden, and you're like, man, no, I still carry, I still carry the scars. Now, let me just say that if you are a little bit flinchy about the church or about this idea of Christian community, I do, I get it. I completely get it. I sympathize with you because I think it's true. We all know this to be true is that anytime you decide to connect to other people in meaningful and deepening ways, it opens up the real potential for things like pain, for hurt, for rejection, for offense, and even for full-blown and lengthy animosity that you have experienced in your life in the relational breakdowns that you have occurred that have gone on in your life. And so we could go through all the psychological and the sociological reasons as to why this is the case. But truthfully, I gotta be honest with you, I think that the issues, many of the issues that we have with community can easily be summed up by the early to mid-90s phenomenon in middle school and high school education that is known as the group project. Right, the group project. You guys, you guys know what I'm talking about. You all remember that moment or those several moments when your teacher proceeded to uh, stand up in front of the class and they proceeded to tell you that some aspect of your grade 
whether that's for the unit or the, or the specific thing that you were doing or the entire semester, that some aspect of your grade was not going to be based on your personal effort, your earning, your merit, or your worth as an individual. That instead, somehow, some part of your grade was actually going to be a reflection of how well you played with others, right? How well you were able to collaborate in the group project. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I hated, with a deep disdain, I hated the group project. And why did I hate the group project? Well, I knew inevitably I was going to be paired with people who, there's just, there's just no other way to say it, I'm sorry, but I knew I was gonna be paired with people who sucked. Like, they just sucked, right? And so for those of you who are laughing, you're like either I know the feeling or I was one of the people that sucked, right? So, because here, here's one thing I knew. I would get so frustrated. I actually cared about my grade. I cared and I knew the moment I was paired with certain people, these were gonna be the leeches who were gonna not lift a finger to do a single stinking thing riding on the backs and the coattails of the intellectual genius that you see on the stage right here. They were gonna get all the benefit and I was gonna do all the work. Now, let me just ask you, quick survey, by show of hands, how many of you match my disdain and abhorrence for the group project? How many of you hate it? Yeah, right, a lot of us in the room. You're my brothers and sisters here. We're, we're, we're jiving here. Okay, and you can put your hands down, which you've already done. And I would, honestly, I would uh, invite those of you who rode on the coattails and got an A on my back and other people's backs who are really smart. I would ask you, you raised your hand. Thank you so much. I, 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 this guy owns it over here. I'm just saying, like, I'm proud of you. Stand up. No, <laughs> but I would ask you all, you all to raise your hands who did that, but uh, it would just be a useless gesture because you're too lazy to lift a finger to do anything about it anyway. It's because you suck, okay? You suck. Now, I'm, I'm just, somebody clapped. Oh my gosh. I'm actually startled. I don't know what to do next. <laughs> But uh, no, you don't really suck. Well, maybe mildly, kind of, you suck just a little bit, okay? Now listen, uh, funny as that is, uh, working together in high school and middle school group projects, I think this reveals a lot about the widespread distrust and the aversion that so many of us have about community that exists widespread in our culture. Because the idea, the very idea, that I, as an individual, might be dependent on anyone else for anything or that my value and worth as a human being might not be dictated by who I am as I express myself, but in how I relate with others in a group. Man, that is just so foreign to us in our culture, isn't it? And that's because as sociologists and cultural scientists have pointed out, these analysts have pointed out for a while now, we exist, we live in a highly individualistic culture. Uh, we live in a culture that is subscribed to a philosophy known as individualism, or you might have heard it as expressive individualism or rugged individualism. And what this means is that even before we got into middle school and high school and had trouble with the group project, guys, we were already drinking the Kool-Aid of a philosophy that stated that the individual is king, the individual's king, and that uniqueness, independence, and autonomy is to be celebrated and ultimately championed no matter what the cost, and that the individual takes supreme precedence over the collective or over the group, that ultimately the self is priority number one. 
And so this means that any value that we might still place on community and relationships with other people is now going to be refracted through the lens of my own self-betterment and my own personal desire. How those in my social network or in my social sphere benefit me, support me, or further the personal vision that I have for myself in my life. Now listen, if you are still maybe a little bit on the fence as to whether this rugged individualism has penetrated into the very fabric of our social consciousness, let me just quickly remind you, I'm going to put up on the screen, a few slogans that we commonly hear in our culture every single day. And then I want to follow that up with a number of statements that were made by uh, some psychoanalysts about 50, 60, 70 years ago that serve as kind of like the founding fathers of this philosophy and this ideology of individualism that runs rampant throughout our world and our culture. So first, the slogans. We've seen this, you guys, right? First one, you do you, boo, right? Uh, Really quickly, um, if someone after the service can explain to me where the boo or what the boo is and where it came from, I will literally give you $50. I will give you $50. But you do you, boo. We've got the Disney Channel slogan that says, follow your heart, no matter what the cost, chase your dreams. In other words, even if those relationships in your life tell you that what you're about to do is not a good idea, that it is not wise, it is not shrewd, it's not prudent, it's not good for you, You need to spurn and reject the feedback of the group at all costs because your heart and your desires, whatever you want, is king. It's supreme. You should pursue that no matter what. Don't let anyone tell you you're not good enough, right? And all of these things are fueled by, again, just a couple statements that I think fuel a lot of this ideology that exists in our culture that we're imbibing constantly. James Hollis, a psychoanalyst, says, to become a person does not necessarily mean to be well-adjusted, well-adapted, or approved of, listen to this, or approved of by others. In other words, to become an authentic individual has less to do with how you interface and relate with those who are around you, but more in how you are overcoming the resistance of others in your group. And becoming unique, becoming different, becoming autonomous and independent. To become a person, he says, means to become who you are. We are meant to become more eccentric, more peculiar, more odd. We are not meant just to fit in, presumably, to a group and social relationships. We are here to be different. We are here to be the, say it, the individual, right? Carl Rogers says, I'm increasingly an architect of self. I am free to will and choose. I can, through accepting my, say it, individuality, become more of my uniqueness. In other words, how different I am from everyone else in the group and the status quo. More of my uniqueness, which means I am reaching more of my potentiality as a human being. M. Scott Peck says this about the spiritual aspects of rugged individualism. He says, the ultimate goal of life remains the spiritual growth, check it out, of the individual. The solitary journey to peaks that can be climbed only, wow, alone. Independence, just you on the spiritual journey. Forget about journeying with others together. It's about journeying in a solitary way, alone. Now listen, I have to be really honest with you. Because this is the air that we breathe, all of this 
it honestly sometimes inspires me. I am tempted to be so inspired by these statements and these slogans. It like sounds really good to me, seriously. But if we're honest about that, we also have to be really honest with, I think, a glaring question that we have to address in light of all this, and it's this. How is this, how is all of this working for us? Guys, how is it working for us? Listen, you know it, I know it. We don't even need the stats, do we? We just simply need our own personal experiences and we just need to check out the newsfeed. We know that the results, the results are in. The results of the rule of the individual are leaving us empty and they're leaving us lonely. We know the stats, right? We don't need to hear them again. Depression rates are at an all-time high. Loneliness is at an all-time high. Suicide rates are high and they continue to climb. Animosity in our world toward other people is now the norm rather than the exception. Lack of trust in one another is rampant. Guys, I think we see that the grand vision of the lofty heights of rugged individualism that is promoted by our culture has left most of us off and dropped us off at the pits of despair. And here's what I believe. Not only do I believe that this is running rampant within us and that we're drinking the Kool-Aid constantly by a culture that promotes this and pushes this into us, I also believe that God himself sees all of this. And I think he sees it to a depth that we don't even know or could never realize. And not only do I believe that God sees all of this and our struggles with it, I also believe that we have a God who wants to rescue us from our individualism. He wants to save us from all of this. Not just to save a bunch of individuals from their sins, which is really important, but to save all of us into something into a life of meaningful relationships with one another. I believe that God wants to save us to community. And I believe that God wants to offer us a little bit of a trade. He wants us to exchange our warped views about community for his vision as God designed this community from the very beginning of his creation in the first chapters of the book of Genesis where God creates humanity, male and female, designed for a community of trust, mutual dependence, and love with God, but also with one another. I believe God wants us to offer a vision that helps us see that community was not created ultimately to serve us and our individualistic desires. That God wants us to see that we are created for him and we are created for others. That we, as human beings, we're created for community. And so that is what we are after in this series. We are after this big, broad salvation life vision of being brought into reconciled relationship with God, but also reconciled relationship with one another in community. That's what we're after. And so today, as an introduction to the series, what I want to do is I just simply want to go to a passage of scripture that I think presents a really profound portrait of God's desire for community. And listen to this, the way that God wants us to most fundamentally conceive of what community is and why it is so essential to the salvation life that he offers us. And so this passage is actually going to be found, if you brought your Bibles, you can begin to make your way out here. This passage is found in the book of Ephesians, specifically chapter two, verses one through 10. So Ephesians chapter two, 
verses one through 10. Now, if you don't have a Bible with you, that is completely fine. There are some Bibles under the seats in front of you. This passage will be on page 947 in those Bibles. And lastly, um, just wanna let you know, if you don't have a Bible of your own, one of those Bibles in the seats in front of you is now yours. We want you to take that home with you. It's just our gift from us to you, as well as our way of saying not only thank you, but also of our conviction that we want to get what we believe is God's very word to you, his message to you about him and about you and the world around you. We wanna get that into your hands. So just take one of those, if you will. So uh, right now, as you're making your way out there, um, what I wanna do is give us a little bit of maybe a backdrop or a context to what we're dropping into here in uh, Ephesians chapter two. So what we are about to read, here's one thing you need to know, has been considered by uh, biblical scholars and theologians to be probably the most compact distillation of what Christians think it means to be saved. What Christians think it means to be saved and reconciled into a brand new relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So what we're about to read here is like Christianity 101, Christian Salvation 101. It is like foundational, bedrock, essential baseline. And so with that in mind, let's read what Paul says to a group of followers of Jesus in the ancient city of Ephesus in the first century. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Paul continues on. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Man, what a beautiful and amazing, like breathtaking passage that we have here about the salvation that God offers to all of us in Jesus Christ. And while I have to admit that there are parts of this passage that I still don't completely understand, I just absolutely love, and maybe hopefully you share this with me, I love how succinct and straightforward and clear a definition of salvation that we get here from the Apostle Paul. And so as we pointed out a number of times here at Medina East, what we can see in this passage is that there's kind of a threefold movement present here that summarizes something that the Bible will over and over again refer to as the gospel. Now, gospel is just a churchy term. It simply means good news, and it refers to the good news about the possibility of salvation, life with God, a reconciled relationship with God as a result of what Jesus Christ has done in the cross and in his resurrection. The relationship that's available with God because of who Jesus is and what he's procured for us. Now, this gospel message, often at Medina East, we've, we've considered that like a helpful way to express these three movements or these three aspects of the gospel is sort of like this. 
that a helpful way to understand when you see the gospel in scripture, oftentimes you get this threefold movement that it begins, the story begins with act one, radical sin, and that act two moves to the radical grace of God to provide or to give provision to be rescued from our sin and rebellion, and that that actually leads to the third act, which is radical love, radical love, that God transforms a community of people into being able to love others like Jesus. And so we can actually see this right here in this passage, even as we move chronologically or sequentially through it, that the gospel here in verse one begins with radical sin. Paul says, you guys were dead in your transgressions and sins. You're dead because you gratified the cravings of the flesh. You followed the flesh's desires and its thoughts. So Paul says here, because of sin and because of transgressions against God, the relationship with God that humanity was designed to have from the very beginning is DOA. It is dead on arrival and that there's nothing we could do at all to earn or merit favor with God. It's dead on arrival, radical sin. So Paul's kind of like at the beginning of Ephesians chapter two, he's kind of like, guys, I hate to break it to you, but you kind of suck. You kind of suck, right? And, but that, that doesn't stop there, right? It leads into the next act, radical grace. Something has happened, verse four, but right now, though you were dead in your radical sin, but something's happened because of God's great grace. Notice that in this passage, twice, Paul refers to the grace of God as being the fulcrum of offering salvation and resting people away from their deadness and radical sin. Once in verse five, he says, it is by grace you have been saved through And then verse eight, he says it again. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is all about God's grace. And we can summarize this idea of God's grace is that God's grace is God's friendly disposition. That God is, you guys gotta hear this, that God is predisposed to be kind and benevolent. He is predisposed to be for humanity. And that this grace and this predisposition to love humanity to be for us actually causes him, it, it stirs him up to act in concrete ways in human history to give us a gift, to give us the gift of salvation and rescue. Paul says this twice. And that this is apprehended, it's responded to, not by an attempt to be better or to do better or to earn favor from God. The response of God's grace, his generosity and his favor toward us expressed in the gift of Jesus Christ on the cross and in his resurrection is to be responded to simply by faith, which should be understood as us merely responding by trusting the provision that God has made in Jesus Christ to rescue us and to reconcile and restore the relationship we were designed to have with him. But notice here in this passage, it does not end there. We need to move on to act three. God does not simply rescue people so that we can stand around and enjoy the grace that he has offered to us. No, instead, his grace offered to us is getting the partnership with humanity that he desired back on track. Act three, verse 10 says, for we now, those who follow Jesus and have placed faith in him and are banking on the provision that God has made for reconciliation with him through Christ, he says, we now are God's handiwork. We're a new creation in Christ and we are created for something, to do something. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. 
So God creates people new in Jesus so that they can love others and they can bear the fruit of good works in their lives, which at the very least are acts of loving service that we would perform to others to bring about their best, to bring about their flourishing, to bring about goodness and well-being in their life. And so guys, do you see this? Do you agree? This is such a beautiful portrait of what God has done to rescue us, to reconcile us, and to restore us individually. And this is how a person comes into that reconciled relationship with God. Which means that what I'm about to say next, I have to qualify a little bit, okay? This passage, I want to unequivocally declare to you that this passage absolutely teaches how an individual becomes reconciled to God. Absolutely, it is how an individual becomes reconciled to God. I want you to hear me. This is God's word to you, and it's personal. It's God's word to you personally. But having said that, I do think that there are a couple clues that indicate that a purely individualistic reading of this passage might shortchange us to some bigger, more robust understandings of God's desires not only to save individuals, but to rescue the entire creation that has been broken and is in decay because of our sin and our rebellion. I think there is something here, there are a couple clues actually, that give us an indication that a purely individualistic reading of this passage might distract us from some bigger things that God wants us to see. And I mentioned that there are several of these things, but one in particular I think is highly notable. It's very notable, and and it has to do with this. You ready? It has to do with, I'm going to blow you away with this one, I promise. It has to do with the pronouns that are used in this passage. I know, right? You're You're like, what are you talking about, pronouns that are used in this passage? Well, let me just tell you this. Apart from the pronouns that are used to describe or refer to God and to Jesus in this passage, listen to me, every one of the pronouns that are used in this passage are plural. Every one of them. They're all plural, including all the use in our English that we get in this passage. They're not second person singular, which in our English, this might be a little bit obscured. They're not second person singular. All of the use in this passage, the pronouns, are second person plural, which means that we actually need to double click on our Texas Bible Translator app and read this passage, not with you, but with y'all, with y'all. And notice how this thing reads, guys, super differently. There's something that begins to come out of this passage as a result of seeing it in this way. Paul says, right? I'm so sorry that I did this, okay? But hear it. As for y'all, y'all were dead. In y'all's transgressions and sins, in which y'all used to live, when y'all follow the ways of this world, it's like Paul is sketching a community of people who are mired in their deadness and their broken relationship with God together. Paul says all of what? Us lived among them one time. We gratified the cravings of our collective flesh and the influence on all of us. We were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of God's great mercy, he made us alive with Christ. It's interesting in the original language, the word made us alive, the verb alive, actually is a kind of word that's invented by Paul. That means, and it brings it out in some other translations, that we were made alive together. 
that the life that God gives us is a together kind of life. We were raised up and brought to new creation life together in Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace y'all have been rescued. God raised us up with Christ. He seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ, which if you know what that means, I'll give you another 50 bucks. But like, he expressed his kindness to us in Christ Jesus, for it is by grace y'all have been saved through faith. And this is not from y'all selves, which is not a word, but I am going to email the governor of Texas and ask him to put this word in their dictionary in the future. It's not by works. We can't boast. For we collectively are God's handiwork, not just you and me individually as handiwork in Christ, but all of us collectively as a body together in the Lord are God's new created community handiwork. And he created us together collectively, corporately to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Guys, do you see this? That when we get the most compact, distilled, clear-cut version of the gospel, we discover that God's salvation isn't a solo enterprise. The salvation and reconciled life that God wants for us is not done in independence or in isolation. As one scholar has noted, I love this, Joseph Hellerman says this, he says, the idea of salvation, both in Ephesians 2 and throughout scripture, the idea of salvation cannot be reduced to a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, is Hellerman saying that it doesn't have to do with a personal relationship with Jesus? Not at all, not at all. But he's saying that if it's simply reduced to a me and Jesus framework without the consideration of the community that God has invited us into, it's reduced, it's truncated, we're missing something. The idea of salvation cannot be reduced merely to a personal relationship with Jesus because God's plan is much more encompassing because here's what God intends. He intends for salvation to be a community-creating event. God and his redeemed people. Guys, salvation is a group project. Salvation is God's handiwork. It is God's group project. In fact, do you want to know what God calls this salvation community the illustrations that he uses to describe how followers of Jesus ought to now understand who they are most fundamentally. How followers of Jesus are to understand their very identity in Christ. So jump down with me here to verse 19, actually. Now, unfortunately for us, we do not have time to cover the stuff that is in verses 11 through 18. Paul speaks there extensively of the deep tension, the animosity, and the fracturing that have occurred, that has occurred in history in two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, that existed in the ancient world. But when Paul addresses these two groups of people who were formerly separate from one another, and they have been made, they have been brought together as a new humanity by the peacemaking act of Jesus' cross and his blood, look at the language that Paul uses here later in the chapter, which is in many respects a climax of what Paul's argument is that he began in verse 1. He says, Christ came and preached peace to y'all, I added that, to y'all who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through Christ, we both have access to not just God, this is important, but to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, Paul now shares that there are three consequences of 
Jesus's reconciling cross act, giving his blood, shedding his blood for us. He says, consequently then, therefore, you guys are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with number one, metaphor number one. Here's who you are. You are God's people. You are God's very own people. And also you are members, number two, you are members of his household. And y'all are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become, here's another metaphor. Paul just jumps from one to another. To become, number three, a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. Again, there's so much we could say, but, but one of these three direct consequences of Jesus's reconciling work actually becomes, if you read the rest of Paul's letters and indeed the rest of the New Testament, one of these three consequences, these metaphors, becomes absolutely central and foundational for how we are to all understand the community that Jesus has invited us into. This one here, this metaphor is bedrock for Paul and it's the one that appears in the middle of the three. It's found in this phrase right here. That because of what Jesus has done, that when we respond by faith, we are incorporated into a household, that we become members of God's household. Now, what's interesting to me here is the, in the original language, the word that is used for household is a Greek word called oikos, or it sounded out as oikos. Now, if you were going to look this up in a Greek dictionary, it literally means yogurt. No, that, that doesn't mean yogurt. Okay, so... And Dan and Oikos yogurt, anybody? Okay, so it's the word oikos, but if you were gonna look it up in a Greek dictionary, it literally means house, just simply means house. However, this word was kind of flexible or it was malleable a little bit, and it could take on some different connotations depending on the context in which it was used. So house or oikos could refer to a literal building or structure that was used to shelter people. Oikos, or house, could also be used to to describe the way that people in ancient cultures organized themselves, that bloodkin in ancient cultures organized themselves. But if you wanted to refer to the deep relational connection of love, of support, and commitment, listen to me, that existed within a family, the deep connection of love, support, and commitment and devotion that existed in a family, guess what word you would use if you were in the first century in Rome? Yep, you would use the word oikos, oikos. Guys, I love how one scholar draws out this oikos as a family concept as I think it's found here in Ephesians chapter two. Wayne Barber says the word household can be translated as family. And he says, isn't that wonderful? Because God is screaming at us through the scriptures, he says, and he's saying individually, I love you. I love you. I love you. I would do anything to reconcile you to me. I have, I've given my unique one of a kind son so that I could have a relationship with you. I love you. I love you. I love you. But God also says, Now, as members of my family, you not only have a brand new relationship with God as your father, but that wherever you go, you also find brothers and sisters in Christ. You guys, if you are a follower of Jesus, 
If you are experiencing the salvation life that God offers you through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, it means that a natural and essential part of this Christian life, what it means to be saved is that you are being saved into a multi-ethnic unified family with God as your father but also with a slew of brothers and sisters who have all been born into that same family because of our faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 says that it is possible to have a restored and renewed, reconciled, vertical relationship with God. There is indeed for each one of us radical sin, radical grace, and radical love. But when we think about the benefits of our salvation, we cannot miss the gospel that is found in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. And incidentally, the word gospel never appears in the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2, but it does appear in verse 18, where Paul begins to talk about the peace that has been introduced between these former groups who were only at enmity with one another, the new humanity, the reconciliation. Paul says that Jesus Christ, by his blood on the cross, has announced the good news of peace and reconciled relationships with one another. So that means that the vertical gospel, we can't miss the horizontal gospel of Ephesians chapter 2 that there was radical hostility amongst us formerly at one time that there has been a radical peace and reconciliation with one another that has been brought about by Jesus' work, and that that constitutes us into a radical new family of God, the household of faith. And this family becomes a non-negotiable aspect of our salvation. It becomes the natural outflow of our relationship with God as our Father, You see, salvation, the whole experience of growing into people who look more and more like Jesus, it's being embraced. Guys, it's being worked out. It's being walked out. It's being lived out. And it's being done in this way, in committed and deepening relationships with siblings in the father's family. Guys, how beautiful and how breathtaking is it that God would send Jesus for us individually? But how much more amazing and how much more should we stand in awe of what God has done that we are not simply just reconciled to him, but that we have the possibility of being reconciled and at peace with one another in a Christian family with God as our father. You know, when I think about some of these things, I cannot help but think about like the father, the son language, the daughter language, the sibling language, all of that. I cannot help but think, about my own family and me being a father to my kids. Now, when I think about uh, me being a father to my kids, it is true that I have a relationship with each one of my children independently, individually. That is very much true. And as a loving father, sure, they're not perfect and our relationship isn't great, but I think it's at least healthy and functional because they're not perfect, which, is, uh, which, which I am, of course. But um, I have a really good relationship and it's very healthy. But sometimes when I think about their relationships with one another as siblings, the dynamic changes. Um, They are far from perfect, and you can really see that in my three kids when they interact with one another. Because if you've had siblings or if you have kids and you watch the dynamic at play, you know know something to be true. Like any siblings, my, my kids, they bicker and they fight. My kids backbite all the time. They're constantly insulting one another. 
And guys, I gotta tell you, the, um, the number of your mom jokes that fly around uh, from my kids toward one another is just obscene. Like, it's absurd. So, and and I th- I'm thinking, you do realize that when you said your mom went to college or your mom, mom made avocados at dinner, like the other night, literally your mom made avocados. Like, your mom made avocados. Like, you, you do realize that that's your mom too, right? So you're insulting yourself. And oh, by the way, she's literally right behind you. Come on, show some respect. Have some decorum a little bit. But so they backbite and they constantly, they're jockeying for positions of privilege and notoriety. Usually privilege for them means the recliner on family movie nights, but nevertheless. And sometimes when I step back and as I watch them just bicker and fight and insult and do all this, as I watch them interact with one another, there are just times where I wonder if they were ever given a choice as to whether to opt in to the family and to have them constituted around their brothers and their sister or their brother and their sisters, would they actually choose to be a part of this family if their siblings were included? Would they, would they choose? If given the choice, would they ever decide to do life with one another? Would they decide to do that? But here's the kicker. Because I'm their father, because they're my children, they're mine, because they're family, that means they don't have a choice. They don't have a choice. And it means that their life is inevitably going to be shaped and molded as they mature and grow into adulthood. They will forever be different people. They will forever be who they are as a result, not just of only like their relationship with me as their dad, but because of the way they interact with each other as siblings. Their life is going to be unavoidably shaped because they are also the unavoidable means by which they will become who God intends them to be as they grow up. Listen, whether they like it or not, because they're in the family. And, and as a father, man, what I long for them most is not just that they would be polite to each other or kind, though that would be great. <laughs> now, what I really long for them to see is I want, I want them to see the absolute gift that they are to each other. Warts and struggles and pain included. That they are an essential means by which they are going to grow up and be who they are to be. Because how would they learn to love? How would they learn to sacrifice for others? How would they learn to care for other people in a way that is selfless, that desires the flourishing of others in their world? How would they learn to know what it means to uplift even when it's hard and you don't want to? How would they learn what it means to support and honor one another and to pursue their greatest good if they didn't have each other? I'll be honest with you, this sort of perspective really helps me and I hope it helps you as well. It helps me when I consider all of the flaws and the issues that I have endured with community and the many scars that I still carry that tempt me to bail and to run from community. Because you have to see this, like my own family, like your own family, there are plenty of problems with Christian community. There are plenty of struggles that exist and they're all pretty much related to people in the church of Jesus Christ. We know this. It's unfortunate. It's sad. It's tragic, but it's a reality. There are tensions and breakdowns and failures in Jesus's church. 
Because like immature children, we're all still broken. The transformative power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit is still, like we're a work in progress. We're still learning the rhythms and the habits of this amazing salvation life that we have been brought into. But like immature children, it means that there's still brokenness within us sometimes. And when that brokenness comes out, it can get really, really ugly, can't it? But you have to see this. In God's grand plan, and I believe as a means of his grace, part of his gift to you and to me to live this life out together is the real-time mechanism that the Spirit uses in community to make each one of us more and more like the Father's Son, like Jesus. Because how can we learn what it means to lay our lives down and sacrifice for another? How can we learn what it means to bear one another's burdens even when the person's burdens that we're bearing, that, that we're bearing, that person has really rubbed us the wrong way and offended us? How can we learn to give generously and lavishly of ourselves and all the resources that we possess? These are things, mind you, that Jesus himself did and instructs and commands his followers to do likewise as we follow and are disciple to him into the freedom of the life that God offers for us. How can we learn to do any of those things if we don't have others that we are devoting ourselves to, no matter how messy, no matter how hard or frustrating that process is or that gets? Guys, here's the central truth. Commitment to God means commitment to his family. Devotion to Jesus means devotion to one another. And honestly, this is one of those things that I think deep down inside, way deep down there for some of us who have buried all of this underneath layers and layers and layers of our rugged individualism, deep down inside, we know this. And this, I think, is what we really truly long for, isn't it? Yes, to be reconciled, in a vertical relationship with God as our Father, to be reconstituted in that relationship, yes, but also the possibility of being rightly reconciled to one another and live this life out together, as Pastor Steve says, for real, for real, to discover the transformative power of community life together as the household of faith, as the family, as the very family of God, as the very family of God. And so, this is what we're going to be all about in this series. We simply want to explore the greatness of our God in not only reconciling us to him in Christ individually, but also the possibility of working that salvation life and being reconciled to one another and having peace. That's all we want to do throughout this series. And so for the rest of the series, uh, as I invite the band up, here's what we have. We just have two series aims, two goals that we want to see happen in every conversation that we're going to be in for the next nine weeks. Here, two aims. One is a bit more maybe theological and abstract, and the other is a far more, I think, practical. Number one, every single week, every conversation, is we want to be committed to paint a picture of the manifold wisdom of God that exists in the church of Jesus Christ. That though it's complicated, though it can get messy, though it can get hard, we are going to, 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 to decide to repaint this picture of a father who has given everything to reconstitute ourselves in relationship to him as our dad, as our loving father, but also to one another. 
We just want to keep putting that in front of us. And then when we do that each week, we also want to do this. We want to get super practical. Every week, we want to decide to take practical or concrete steps to actually do it for real, to practice community, to lean into these relationships no matter how hard or messy or frustrating they become. And so my encouragement to all of us is, can we decide today to lock into both these aims, but to lock into this series, to really engage, to really commit to what I believe that God by his spirit wants to do in and through us as a community of people, as his family here at Medina East. And what I mean by that is maybe not that you would just commit to come on the weekend or attend on the weekend, but that you would commit to community in whatever form or whatever shape that might take if it's a single step to lean more toward Jesus's mechanism for transformation in your life, this church community, whether it's taking a step or whether it's taking many steps, this is what we would long for us to do and what we want to accomplish or achieve or aim for in this series. And let me just say that our team is created just as a resource to maybe help with some of this uh, in this process. Um, each week, we wanna let you know that on Monday of every week on our website, so you might wanna write this down, On our website, every Monday morning, we are going to be posting something called a community guide. And all the community guide is, it's a simple, like very short, maybe one to two page guide that is going to look back into the aspect of biblical community that we're going to be talking on in weekend services in the previous weekend. And it is simply going to be a catalyst and an encouragement to you to continue to talk about those things in your conversation with the Spirit and to reflect on those things in a meaningful way as you move forward throughout that week. And our encouragement to you is that you wouldn't just do that alone that this wouldn't be a solitary journey for you, that you would maybe grab at least one other person or maybe someone in your life group or maybe you decide in your life group to do this together and to engage these community guides offline for maybe the time of the evening and the week that you meet as a life group. But this is just a resource and we would hope that it would catalyze these conversations so that we could actually practice community for real, so that we could lean into the means of grace and the gift of God as our Father and the fact that we have brothers and sisters in this family. Bottom line, you guys, I'm so excited as we walk forward in this to discover, yes, afresh, the reality of this renewed relationship we have with God in the gospel, but to explore the very, very exceedingly good news of Jesus and that we have been invited into and incorporated into a family with brothers and sisters that become the means by which we become more like Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come and we approach you and the fact, the reality that we can even approach you right now and call you Father and address you in that way is just mind-blowing. And so Father, first and foremost, we are very, very grateful that you would choose to, out of your grace, your generous and kind and benevolent posture toward us, give up that which was your very best, your one and only son, so that we might have life, so that we might have salvation, and we might experience the relationship with you that we each individually were designed to have from the beginning. Father, you are so good, and you are so gracious, and we praise you and thank you for that relationship. And Father, we are asking right now that as we as a community of faith, as the family of God here at Medina East, as we lean into and step into a season of life where we are going to double-click on your desires for us in the relationships that we have with each other as a family, 
Father, we confess that we are going to need a lot of your Spirit's work, your Spirit's leading, your Spirit's voice to do something that would otherwise be impossible for us to do, something that would be very hard, which is to lean into the often complicated and messy and frustrating but beautiful manifold wisdom of you in the church of Jesus Christ. So Holy Spirit, as we even now consider our hearts and what you're stirring within us and as we look to respond to you out of gratitude for what you've done as we sing and as we worship together, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us to be able to take these concrete steps to kind of buckle down a little bit and decide in advance that we are gonna step forward into these sets of conversations and we're gonna be responsive to you, that we are going to commit to love and serve and be devoted to your family, our brothers and sisters. Again, Father, thank you for this restored relationship we have with you, but thank you for the invitation that we have to be restored and live at peace with one another in a community and a family of sacrificial love. Father, we love you. Thank you for these truths. And thank you for this season in the life of our church that you're taking us into. And we pray it all in your name. Amen.